1: When circumstances and people upset us, how do we deal with them? Do we turn to anger? Do we get defensive? Do we see others as enemies? In these most challenging of times, there is at least one person who models for us the highest form of radical peace. He is His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Today, we'll be exploring how we too may embody peace and nonviolence as we find peace within ourselves and with the world with our guest, Dr. Robert Thurman. Robert Thurman is an eminent scholar of Asian and Tibetan history and Buddhist art and sciences. For over 50 years, he has been a close student, colleague, and personal friend of the Dalai Lama. He's professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist studies in the Department of Religion at Columbia University and president of the Tibet House US, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the preservation and promotion of Tibetan civilization. He is the co-creator of the graphic novel, Man of Peace, the illustrated life story of the Dalai Lama of Tibet and co-author with Buddhist teacher Sharon Salzberg of Love Your Enemies, How to Break the Anger Habit and Be a Whole Lot Happier. Join us for the next hour as we explore how we can abide in equanimity in times of great hatred and polarization with our guest, Dr. Robert Thurman. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Bob, welcome.
2: Thank you, Justine. It's May real I call p- you Bob? Sure, sure. Uh, great. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Thank you. It's just a, a a delight to have you here in our studio. I would like to to start. Um, have you describe this this particular book, Man of Peace? Uh, first of all, tell us the format of it. Yes, it's well, an unusual it's a, format.
2: It's a giant comic book. <laughs> it has um, it's three almost three hundred pages. And it tells it begins actually with the previous thirteenth Dalai Lama, with the British around the time of the British invasion in 1904. So it covers like more than a century, and um, that's what uh, when the Tibetans and the Dalai Lama first really contacted the outer world. You, you could say you know they were they were shut in by the British policy before that, and also Manchu Empire policy, and um, they've had really quite a ride since then. And especially since the People's Republic of China invaded in 1950 and and then eventually occupied, annexed, and basically committing, a polite thing would be to call it ethnocide or cultural genocide, as the Dalai Lama does, or just plain genocide of the Tibetan people over the last 60 years. Very, very much hidden because the powers that be in the world, starting with the British, sort of consigned Tibet to less importance that and the tibetan people to less importance than the market the chinese market the chinese economy and nowadays of course we're seeing the chinese power and somehow feeling that well it's instead of noise the chinese to lift up the blanket that they try to put over their misdeeds in tibet Which are nothing new. In other words, it's no holier-than-thou thing because Western people did that with Native Americans, with the black people from Africa, African Americans. And so, you know, it's the usual colonial behavior, but it's in post-UN, post-World War II time when it's no longer in fashion, let's say. Right. So therefore, they've kind of hid it. And uh, the world doesn't really know that well about it. And uh, the Dalai Lama's amazing life story has to be told in the light of his reaction to it which is the nonviolent reaction it's like martin luther king or gandhi but something unique about the dalai lama's own uh, like sort of what you could call his struggle with truth using only the what he calls the weapon of truth to seek justice for the tibetan people and he only uses that nonviolently in an international situation you know, Gandhi used it with the vast Indian majority and the and the British minority that was controlling them and exploiting them. Martin Luther King used it with the black minority in America against the white majority that was also oppressing them too strongly. But here we have an international thing where a tiny people of 6, six million people living on the roof of the world high plateau is struggling without violence primarily. It wasn't that there's been no violence, but without violence as a policy, struggling for 60 years against a giant empire of 1.2, 1.3 billion. Although actually, when Mao said in 49 that the Chinese people have stood up, he mentioned 700 million Chinese people. So somehow, in spite of whatever their population policy is, they have doubled in size since, since the communists took over, you know in China. So like <clears throat> they're one point three billion now, you know. So it's really amazing. And if you just think of the Dalai Lama as sort of a nice person and a and a guru and a sweet teacher, etc., and you don't see that he's reacting to really lethal oppression with nonviolence, without with, with love for his enemies, in this precise Buddhist sense of love, that you want the enemy to be happy which is what love means. Love means you is the will to the happiness of the beloved. It isn't desire or just wanting to possess them. It's wanting them to be happy no matter what, no matter how that affects you. And he does do that because why? Why does the Chinese leadership, the communist leadership, why do they insist on crushing the Tibetans and crushing their culture and like forcing them to try to be Chinese when they've never been over thousands of years Chinese? Uh, Because they feel that they won't be happy until the Tibetans somehow have ratified their illegal seizure of of the largest territorial grab since 1945 when it went out of fashion, you know, in the New World Order of the UN, in other words. And um, they want to somehow hide that from the world, you know. And they won't be happy unless they do. So the point is, loving them means if they could be happy without oppressing the Tibetans, hey, they wouldn't be an enemy, that would be great. This is how love your enemies of Buddha and Jesus and other great spiritual leaders is a practical advice. It isn't an unrealistic thing that somehow some nice people say, but really, you know, Caesar is the way to go with armies and warfare and violence, you know. So that's, that's what's marvelous about And that's what inspired us to do another version of, of His Holiness's life story illustrated for a younger generation, so they will follow it with the action kind of a one man versus an empire, which is very dramatic, actually. And also he himself in his own autobiographies, etc., which we all researched, of course, thoroughly, and we've known him for 50 years, over 50 years, Um, but he will never put himself in the light of a hero struggling against an overwhelming adversary with the weapon of nonviolence rather than violence. He wouldn't do that because he's too humble. He's a simple Buddhist monk. You know, he he well, he just wouldn't do that. So and so we are trying to show what a great hero he is to inspire people. You know. So Bob, let me ask you: like there was a a
1: wonderful movie put out called Kundan, I think yes. that was a, just a, just an excellent movie on the. It was really kind of, great. Uh, so what does this book add to that story?
2: Well, Kundan was really a great movie. You know, uh, Lisa, Melissa Matheson. Did a beautiful job writing it. Martin Scorsese did a great job producing it and directing it. But it only dealt with the dilemma up to his escape. You know, it's like the Tin Tin in Tibet, the little Dala, little Lama escapes from the evil oppressor. They showed that a little bit, but they didn't really show. And they showed some vignettes. Martin bravely showed you know, what uh, happened to Tibetans with the early invasion and so forth. But, you know, that was when his Dalai Lama was 24 when he escaped to India, and he's now 82. And so he'd been continuing that struggle nonstop since then, which is two-thirds of his life, and that was not told in a right. way graphic, in a graphic way And a, that's
1: what this book really, yes, really yes. And, and covers. Yes, yes, and B.
2: B, Disney suppressed that movie, and it was not widely distributed, and it was suppressed because they were pressured by China. No Disneyland in Shanghai if you push that movie. In fact, they tried to stop the movie completely and not, not, not publish it, so to speak, whatever you say about movies. and Harrison Ford, you know, Melissa's husband of the time, and uh, Scorsese and other people in Hollywood stopped Michael Eisner from completely killing the movie. But still they they restricted tremendously its distribution. So the story is really still not known about the Dalai Lama. Really, the true story of Tibet and China is really not widely known.
1: So going back to what you were saying about the work that His Holiness is doing is why is it important to people in the
2: US to know this story? Because we need an example of someone who performs Revolution against the militarism that is destroying our planet, without violence, without more militarism. In other words, we are taught that violence must be used to stop violence. In the infinite, in fact, we are nowadays plunged into an infinite war on terror, and it actually has turned around overtly with, with the last misbegotten election, that the the government itself is terrorizing the citizens. And therefore, Nazis are parading openly, you know, and sort of, it's now, in the, the, they're, they're militarizing the police, you know, Sessions and Trump. And, you know, therefore, the, the ordinary person is is conditioned to feel hopeless, despaired, frightened, and, and oppressed right here. It's come to rest to roost now. here. We no longer can say to ourselves, oh, we're the good guys as a nation. We're saving democracy around the world, and we've lost our democracy here. And we're living under terror. So at that time, the fact that there is a world leader, a person of world popularity, who continues to stand for nonviolence and loving of his enemies in that precise sense. It doesn't mean he likes them when they do nasty things, but it means he loves them. In the technical sense, he wants them to be happy without doing nasty things internally feel happy where nobody who's really happy is going to go torture somebody else because it's really not fun. You know, you don't get any real pleasure out of it unless you're really so cramped up that the only way you can feel, you know, alive is if somebody else is wriggling with pain, which is really not, you know, it's like really bad, it's bad sex, you know, it's like (laughs) horrible. There's no positive feedback in it. So my point is we need that example and we need to be reinforced in our, in our feeling. To choose love, that love is more powerful, that peace is more powerful, that peace is possible, and there's no grounds for despair, and despair itself is a defeat, and he kindles our hope. That's why we need to know this story. And also, of course, that's for our own sake, but for others' sake, the Tibetans are one of the—it's like a 60-year-long standing rock struggle against the— Two things that's wrong with industrial... You know, we think modernity and industrialization is civilization, you know, we feel. But actually, you could have industrial savagery as well as, like, primitive savagery. We'll
1: talk more about that in just one moment. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Robert Thurman. He's the co-creator of the book Man of Peace, the Illustrated Life Story of the Dalai Lama of Tibet. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, bobthurman.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions.
3: Oh.
1: here with Robert Thurman, and he's the creator of the Tibet House of U.S. and also um, the creator, co-creator of the book Man of Peace. I, you've written so many books, and so <laughs> you, you're just so prolific, and you've just wow. shared so much with us through the years. But this recent one is it really Strong, strong. You're just coming out as you said. You're 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 speaking the words that His Holiness the Dalai Lama has would not really speak for himself in some ways. And you mentioned earlier uh, something about happiness, uh-huh. and. Um, Wanting our enemies to love them and wanting their happiness, really, truly mm-hmm. wanting their happiness, mm-hmm. and and I just want to k- kind of explore that that idea of happiness because there there are some I think Sharon Salzberg would sh- describe it as happiness is being able to tap into. An inner resource, yes. uh, something, a, a resilience of yes. some sort. Can you say something about what sure. you mean by? wanting sure, sure. It's not la-di-da happiness. What What is happiness? Well,
2: da is okay. Yeah. You know, it's kind of it's nice if it's in tune. <laughs> and uh, so I'm not against Ladida happiness at all. But but um, Buddha's discovery on this planet. And ratified by Jesus and many other spiritual leaders is that reality itself is happiness, actually, is goodness, is kindness, is love. That is the dominant, you know, the you know, the modern materialist scientistic people, they say that the strong force of the universe is a, you can tell they don't really know what it is that holds atoms together because it's an Anglo-Saxon word, strong force. <laughs> it's not a Greek word, you know, electromagnetic or whatever it is, nuclear. It's just strong, you know. And so they don't know what it is. But, the, but Buddha's discovery is that the strong force in the universe is love. It is, the, it, is the, the, it is beings and things wishing to associate with each other, enjoying relativity and relationality. That was his discovery. And if one really does do that, and feels, expands one's sense of identity to feel the feelings of others around one and so forth, one will discover that reality is happiness. So, the real happiness of Nirvana, which was Buddha's discovery, the third, what's called the third noble truth. So, many people wrongly think Buddha discovered suffering. But I'm sorry, it doesn't take, an even an idiot knows about suffering. You just stub your toe, you know, or you get born, pushed out through a birth canal or whatever it is, and you know about suffering. Or you give birth, you know, please, you know, men don't know that one. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's quite a difficult thing. So, no, it doesn't take a Buddha to discover that. But what Buddha discovered to his great relief and to ours is that if you go deep enough and you find the true nature of things, But beyond matter and mind, in a way, including both matter and mind, reality is all right. It is goodness. It is happiness. It is freedom. And so that's true happiness, where you don't depend on winning a medal, dominating somebody else, getting some wealth, having a temporary success, having status, so forth. You feel welling up from within your heart. Than your own reality, which is actually all rightness, happiness, and especially human beings who, among animal life forms, are the, are the most blessed ones actually, because we are free to choose what we do. We're not just driven only by instincts, although, bad rulers. And their intellectual enablers will try to convince us that we're hardwired and we have to behave this way and that way and there's nothing we can do about it and we're helpless. All of those theories make us, you know, are in order to make us manipulable by bad rulers, which we've had lots of, you know. Especially last few thousand years since the men have been in charge and the women have been pushed into the kitchen and the corner and 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 into the labor for nothing rooms. So that's been a tough time, you know. This militaristic time. So, the happy, the true happiness that the Buddha proclaimed, which is why Buddhism was popular. Again, Western people wrongly think that oh, Asians they don't mind suffering because they don't, they're not Western individualists or something. They have some racist ideas like that. Actually, Asians were more peaceful. Asians were conquerable, therefore, by European colonialists because they were. More aware of reality, actually, and they were more individually determined, and they were less manipulable into massive wars and crusades and things. They were more tolerant interreligiously, but no, of course, not perfect, not ideal, but they were more gentle, basically, and therefore they were conquered by, you know, the dissatisfied Europeans, you know, and Arabs and things earlier than that, and Tajiks and people like that. So this is the wonderful good news. This is the good news of Buddhism and Jesus. You know, the kingdom of God is here is what Jesus said. Everything is all right if you just relax and look at the birds in the field and the flowers and whatever. You know, he was Mr. Cool. He was against, you know, being pushed around by the Roman Empire, which is why they tried to kill him. And luckily, the the lucky thing is they failed. He couldn't be killed and there are many great yogis and siddhas in history who are who can defy death like that you know and uh, i think dalai lama is actually one of them yeah you
1: you, you mention love as as a strength and and it yes. has it has a glue like, like yes. there's a natural glue to yes. love and this is this is very heartening uh, to oh, good. think <laughs> that that wait a minute that that it is stronger than let's say evil. That's the, message. Evil. Uh, if, That's if the there... message
2: and Christ too you know uh, you know I was with Matthew Fox the lovely Matthew Fox yesterday what a fabulous time I had at the sacred stream with him and he's so great and uh, and you know Jesus was never worshiped as crucified by early Christians they were into his power And he was shown as priestos pedagogos, the teacher, you know, turning over money changers in the temple and so on, you know, kicking their tables over. And Mr. like healing the people on Sunday or Saturday, he didn't care about the rules at the time. And he was really powerfully loving, you know. And actually he pushed them to try to kill him to show that they couldn't. So he's a triumphant story. After Constantine, the Roman emperor, tried to co-opt and successfully did co-opt Christianity to glue his empire together, they pushed out in face, everybody's face this crucified thing, which was just a demonstration that you can't crucify, love. You cannot kill us. The, cru- the cross is an electric chair, a Roman electric chair. It's not anything gl- gl- glorious unless you make it into a tree of life, which he did by showing that death does, is not as powerful as life. That was his message. And people, don't, people have been, you know, suppressed in the name of the guy who was trying to liberate them for centuries by the Romans picking that and blaming the Jews and then forgetting that Jesus himself was a rabbi. Hey, Mr. Anti-Semitic Nazi weirdo, Jesus <laughs> happened to be Jewish. I have a clue for you. You know, he was not like some Anglo waspy weirdo. He was he was uh, he was Jewish and he was a beautiful, loving, delightful rabbi, and um, he was showing that we're you know, you can crush us politically and militarily, but you can't kill love, and we are loving, and I am love. So even and if you that's don't, that's the message.
1: Even if you don't believe like in, in the in the resurrection, in in some ways
2: metaphorically, he never died. Forget about metaphorically. He he he, he, he didn't die. That's my. I sent a telegram to Mel Gibson. By the way, it's not somebody killed Jesus. He didn't die. That's the point. Nobody <laughs> killed him. They couldn't kill him. And actually, it was the Romans who tried to kill him, not the Jews, the Romans. Of course, they co-opted a few Jews to legitimize themselves, but they did it. Because And that pilot guy, he killed a lot of people. Finally, the next emperor you know, demoted him because he was killing too many people, yeah. creating too much unrest. He right. was really bad news. Anybody who attracted a crowd, he would kill.
1: So, uh, going back to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, I know that you mention and and point out in the book that that he is a true multinational leader. He's yes. not just a leader of one particular. I mean, he he's working for the Tibetan people. Well, of but course, he's it's his more duty and that.
2: responsibility is, is them. You know, first the Tibetan people, but he has become a world Dalai Lama. Although he wouldn't say that himself. You see, he won't show himself like that. That's why we had to do this book, because he won't show himself. I once said to him after he wrote the wonderful book, Ethics for the New Millennium, calling for a spiritual revolution and an ethical revolution on this planet. And I said to him, oh, great, I love that book, and I have loved it ever since, and I teach it all the time. And I said, I'm glad you're now becoming a prophet he says, "No, no, not me. I'm not going to be a prophet." You know, it's like he doesn't like push himself into such a role. You know, he doesn't, but he is actually, and especially, I think he actually thought in his English that I meant predicting the future as a prophet, which he doesn't necessarily like to do. But although he he's not bad at it actually, but. But, you know, prophet means ethical, speaking truth to power, is the prophetic tradition, of course, in the West, you know, in the Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition. He's like, as I like to say nowadays, he's the standing rock. Tibet itself, you realize, you know, water keepers? Tibet itself is the headwaters of the nine great rivers of Asia that support the life of almost 3 billion people, 2.7 billion people. And the... Communist thing, which is not Chinese. We, I don't. We don't blame the Chinese people. Actually, the Chinese people, by a Marxism and B industrialization and capitalism, state capitalism, they are actually imitating the Western industrial anti-nature weird thing. So that's realizing. like the
1: industrial colonization that yes, you were talking about they are imitating that. They are caught
2: up and swept up in that. And uh, their leadership is. So they're actually behaving like Western colonialists, actually. And, and they're forgetting about their good cooking and their double digging and their marvels of Chinese civilization. They discovered gunpowder and didn't use it in warfare because it was uncivilized. They discovered the compass and didn't go genocide the Native Americans. They got to America. There's a, they have a Chinese stone anchors found in, the, in Los Angeles Bay. But they didn't land and colonize there because they were happy in China because they had decent cooking. It wasn't like a crappy old British cooking where Yorkshire pudding was like shoe leather until they got Indians and they got Indians cooking on Brompton Road for them and bringing some spices, you know. Naturally, they conquered the world. They had lousy food.
1: So when when we're you're talking about ethics and yes. so let's what is the difference between our sacred ethics and secular ethics? So do, is there well, a difference? Well, this is a
2: big thing that His Holiness does, and I like it. I love it. Of course, I love everything His Holiness does. Although he and I, we were kind of schoolmates for a little while. He is definitely my total guru, and I absolutely respect him and and I, I admire his achievement his life achievement enlightened achievement I do 100% but when we started we were kind of like schoolmates so he likes to squabble with me we like to I like to squabble with him too we have, we have fun and he has few people who will speak to him kind of a little debate with him in a certain way and uh, you know he's like cuz he's like so so amazing but uh I forgot I'm sorry what now I got to No we're talking about
1: secular Oh and, yeah secular uh, so and so he ethics.
2: purposely he said he's brilliantly all these years of trying to be ecumenical and getting world religions to not interfere with each other and request them not to not to convert people try to increase market share by get, grabbing some Christians or grabbing some Muslims or grabbing some Hindus and or them grabbing some Buddhists. He thinks that world religions are all intermingled in the urbanized planetary society and it's too dangerous with modern weaponry and things for them to go around competing for market share.
1: Okay, now I'm going to pause, pause okay. you right there. We're going to go, go okay. and take right. a break but right. we'll come right back to that point. Okay. I'm here with Robert Thurman and he is the co creator of the book Man of Peace, the illustrated life story of the Dalai Lama of Tibet. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. <speaking in Spanish> I'm here with Robert Thurman and we're talking about the effects of the Dalai Lama as a multinational leader and model and also just world peace and and how we can have more of this and create a less despair and more ethical ethics, uh, more ethics in the world. So you were talking about how his holiness is trying to pull in all the religions yes, of but the world.
2: In, that's right, and that's one of his three main purposes in life, is better understanding between the world religions because long before the end of the 20th century when sociologists and political scientists and anthropologists were freaked out because they were all like the Marxists expecting religions to wither away you know, with all the glory of secular reason. And meanwhile, they all came roaring back with fundamentalism on all sides, including Christianity and everything. Judaism, Islam, Hinduism even Buddhism in some places and so therefore they became when armed with, in pluralistic societies when armed with weaponry and, and re- re- involved in politics, it became really dangerous. And he before that, he was into, I don't want to convert you people to Buddhism. And every time he gives a talk here in some non-Buddhist country, he says, I'm t- talking to you about the beauties and the marvelous Buddhist psychology, Buddhist ethics, Buddhist meditational methodology, and so forth, transformation, the cultivation of compassion, development of mindfulness, all these kind of things. But this is not in order to make you Buddhist. You do that as a mindful Christian, as a compassionate Muslim, as a et cetera, And what you have already in your traditions, and you use if you can learn something from from our psychological and spiritual experience, good. And we need to learn stuff from you, he particularly from Christians. He likes to learn a kind of activism where the nuns make hospitals and they do schools and you know they have like an outreach thing in society. That's his big thing. Where Buddhists are a little too complacent and they're off there in their monastery, you know, because the societies weren't maybe didn't need them as much in the old days, but they do now, and so. And he's asked the Archbishop of Canterbury and different popes and different Muslim leaders in India, at least, and Hindu leaders, please try to minimize this thing of we're going to convert you all to our thing because it leads to, it's a form of projected egotism into religious institutions. You know, religions are basically service industries. They are not ownership industries. They don't own their believers. They serve them. Mm-hmm. And when they think they own them, then they want to have more of them. So they have a bigger ownership sphere. And that's not their purpose. That's not Jesus's purpose. His purpose was to free people, not to dominate and enslave them. And so all of the great religious teachers were like that. And so, so therefore the Dalai Lama used to say when he would gather religious teachers, you know, secular humanism is a religion. You know, scientism is and materialism even with their materialism, it's a religion. It's a big belief system and maybe one billion people follow it. Even they may nominally go to a church or a synagogue or a mosque. They really don't believe in the future life particularly. They don't believe in God particularly really. They don't live as they do. They maybe mouth some words, but they don't. So we have to deal with them as a worldview. That's a huge part of the population. Of course. He says around a billion. If you have one and a half billion Muslims, one and a half billion Christians. Actually, if the communists would lay off it, you'd have probably around that same number of Buddhists. And then you have one and a half billion secularists. And then the smaller religions, and Hinduism is almost a billion, and then there are smaller ones which are national and which are good. Judaism doesn't try to convert a lot of people. It tries to keep its own people, that's all. And it mm-hmm. does. You have to be born one, more or less, unless you marry somebody but, and convert. But they don't go out proselytizing, which mm-hmm. is what's nice about though. Even Hindus, really, in the old days, you had to be born in a Hindu. and That's, that's good from Dalai point of view, in the sense that you therefore live and let live about the other people, or you should. But of course, everyone can turn what they have into a fundamentalism if they become absolutists and fanatic about it. So what does this but, have to do with ethics? So well, you see, he felt that ethics based on science would be have more impact for secular people. So he was saying we it's not good enough. They were going around saying, God said do this or Buddha said do that. People have to see that human being being gentle, human being being loving, human being being not do unto others as you have them would do unto you, and don't do what you wouldn't have them do unto you, sort of thing, grows out of science about the nature of human beings. The baby has to be cuddled, you know, everybody has to be stroked and cuddled, or their brain doesn't develop, you know. And this is these are scientific things. And also, anger and violence and hatred is bad for your health it releases cortisol in your system you'll have a heart attack, you'll have circulatory problems you know, being kind is, and he hasn't pushed it to the degree where women are better than men in this <laughs> regard because they have oxytocin when they get stressed out instead of cortisol and violence they tend to, not that they can they can be violent but but they tend that way and therefore they're ahead but on the, the enlightenment and compassion six, we have to admit, we guys <laughs>
1: So you're talking about physiologically.
2: That's there right. There is
1: a hormonal and difference. Yes.
2: And this is why, you know, I, I believe it came, took to me time because I knew him personally. It's hard to see about someone you know personally. But I believe if Shakyamuni Buddha were alive today, he would be the Dalai Lama. That's how he would serve the people mm-hmm. of the world today. You know, not making them Buddhists and so on, but just helping them to gain more control over their emotions and their minds. That's what he would do. And actually, Shakyamuni Buddha in his own day created a secular ethics, in fact. Karma is not fate, karma is not some mysterious providence or hand. Karma is causality of ethical behavior, including unethical thought, where you feel hostile, whether you don't express it, but you've Feel angry and hostile at your enemy, or you, or greed, where you feel lust for your, think something you want to possess, or you're confused and depressed. These mental things can also be unethical or ethical, as far as Buddhists goes. Speech, of course, we know can, and physical action, we know can. And before Buddha's time, they thought that the gods controlled things, what happened to you. And karma meant a ritual action in a ceremony, getting the gods to help you. You know, but, but Buddha then changed that and he said, no, karma, the action that determines your fate, is ethical action or unethical action. If you act unethically, you're going to get a bad result. If you act ethically, you're going to get a good result. So it was based on Buddha's science of the human nature human nature and what life is about and the human being has evolved from lions and tigers and monkeys and things like that just like Darwin he was perfectly aware of that and human beings have evolved to being a more gentle bunch of people and our power comes from our sociality our cooperativeness the fact we're mammals you know we have the better half of our species it gives birth life to beings inside their own bodies which is remote doesn't just drop an egg in the sand and run off the ocean
1: you know, yeah, that's a we're big not That's a big altruistic thing <laughs> right.
2: to have the have this total stranger come and have a condo in your belly for for a year, yeah. Yeah. and wear you out and make right. you tired right. and you know, make you eat things you didn't like before. I
1: want to ask uh, for your advice. There's yes. a there's a word that is used in Buddhism yes. that I think it's just a wonderful word and it's very helpful in, let's say, in these days and times yes. as as we can we've. Get, we get riled up about yes. certain actions that are being happening right now yes. in the world and and to develop love is to to tap into a kind of generosity. Yes, How what for. is your advice for
2: developing
1: that generosity of spirit?
2: Yes, well, Give gifts. <laughs> As uh, Mother Teresa said, you know, give until it hurts, she said, when she wouldn't go to the Nobel Peace Prize banquet, but it's they gave all those guys in tails and all those royalties, uh, s- cheese sandwiches, you know, and said, take the money and give it to the poor and the starving. She did that. So she was trying to show that giving is very key, especially what you value, you know. You know, it's easy to give something you don't necessarily value, but giving something that you value is a great thing. And, and therefore, the first of the bodhisattva, you know, the, the would-be Buddha, the, the bodhisattva practices is dhana, uh, which means giving, you know, and, um, and generosity. And it doesn't necessarily mean, of course, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to give everything away and become poor. No, actually, generosity makes you want to gain wealth to give it to make others wealthy. And actually, that is the power of commerce, actually. Buddha empowered merchants in his life. He was not against them. He was himself of a military class, and he disempowered them. He was a trader, a good old solid trader to his class, in the sense that military you know there's a certain spark and spunk about soldiers marching around it's kind of nice but uh, basically it's it's oriented around a non-human thing violence you know which humans are not well equipped for naturally do you know what i mean we have we don't have armor plated skin like a crocodile or rhinoceros we don't have a big horn growing out of our nose we don't have fangs we don't spit poison but unfortunately we can invent all that and we can make machines that do that better than the animals but basically we're we are gentle soft-skinned you know mm-hmm. and we break our fingernail if we try to claw somebody like a tiger you know
1: so developing generosity yeah so
2: so but the point is letting go you know is generosity and last night matthew was talking about Meister Eckhart and the concept of Gelassenheit, you know, letting go ness, uh, German for letting go ness, and that's that's related to generosity. You know, Buddha was uh, Buddha's previous life just before becoming a Buddha was a prince called Vesantara, which means one who's nearby the merchants. Actually, his name, and it, oh yeah, that's right. Buddha liked the merchants because merchants thrive by helping the customer thrive. You know, commerce is based on a kind of altruism. Yes, you try to make a good deal, but you want your, the guy you deal with to also get something out of it. So then you can go back and deal with them the next time around. You know, so they'll be good customers. They'll have a sense of loyalty. you bond with them through trade. The problem with the military is, of course, you get the best deal. You go and get everything they had. But, but you don't have commerce next year because you killed your customer. So it it cuts off the energy. It cuts off that flow between people. So Buddhism grew with commerce and wealth in India, which was the wealthiest of all the Eurasian civilizations in that era. This is why Buddha was there and was tolerated there. And when they would have fried somebody who wanted to organize a bunch of free lunch needing monks and nuns (laughs) in the middle of their society. In either China or West Asia or Europe, they would have gotten rid of such a person. But India had such a wealth and a surplus that they tolerated that. And he also, he was a royal clan, so they respected him in a certain way. He was able to found that. And also, he didn't attack the religion. He broke away from it, but he didn't attack it. And he told his monks and nuns, don't act like priests, don't do birth ceremonies, don't do naming ceremonies, don't do marriages, don't do funerals, just become enlightened and get your one free lunch. Don't ask for dinner, don't ask for breakfast, just lunch. <laughs> and then people will be cool with you and then you can be- develop your spirit and your inner mind. Men and women and people from all classes, all castes, it was a marvelous Thing that he did Toynbee Arnold Toynbee without at all being a Buddhist recognizes Buddha as the most efficient and most effective and most successful of the axial age teachers in mid first millennium before the common era he was in a culture that was more wealthy so they were able to tolerate it like ancient India in Buddha's time was the California of Eurasia, and that day, and people were more sensible. Therefore,
1: I love it that you say more efficient and effective. It reminds me of um, Bucky Fuller would always go for that which is yes. more efficient
2: and yes. effective. Yes, oh, I love Bucky
1: Fuller. I'm, I, we all do. It's so wonderful. Well, uh, the sad I'm,
2: thing is that you know, younger generation nowadays doesn't even know who oh, he is.
1: They have to tune into new dimensions. We have hours with Bucky. <laughs> oh, great! You gotta, you gotta download great. our programs with Bucky. I'm here with Robert Thurman. He's the co-creator of Man of Peace, the Illustrated Life Story of the Dalai Lama of Tibet. As, and with many other books and, and teachings and podcasts, you can go to his website, go to bobthurman.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Oh. I'm here with Dr. Robert Thurman, and he's a professor of Indo-Tibetan Buddhist studies at the Department of Religion at Columbia University and president of the Tibet House U.S., which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the preservation and promotion of Tibetan civilization, and uh, also the co-creator of the newest book uh, called Man of Peace, the Illustrated Life Story of the Dalai Lama of Tibet, which I highly recommend. And you were saying something, Bob, about um, activities without attachment. And it reminds me. It reminds Mm -hmm. me of something that changed my life. Mm -hmm. And this was... uh, Back in the '70s, and uh-huh. you were there. I was there, and we were both there in Costa Rica oh, when yes. His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh-huh. was welcomed to mm-hmm. Costa Rica mm-hmm. by a head of state, and yes. that was the first time mm-hmm. that that happened. Usually, he was he would have to sneak into the back door because of the Chinese, but this time, our Oscar Arias welcomed him as right. a head of one head of state to another. And there was some moment in that conference when someone said, "I, I don't understand." They asked him the question, "I don't understand why you go around happy all the time. Uh, you're, you know, there's genocide happening to your people. You'll probably never get to back to Tibet." And I don't understand. And His Holiness said something that changed my life. Oh. And he said, um, "Well, first of all, number one." Uh, you feel better when you go, and you're happier. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a practical matter. But secondly, he said, "You know, I do not know the future. I don't know what's how all of this is going to turn out. But every day I get up and I do what is right and good for me to do, not because I understand the outcome, but because it is right and good for me to do." Good. Okay. And that just really got to me because I realized, Bob, that I was putting my eggs in the basket of only those things that I thought would succeed, rather than Uh following my heart
3: in
1: what I felt was the right and good thing to do for me, not because I would understand an outcome, but so this this like helps us. To to not despair because each day we get up and we're yes. doing. Uh, maybe you can. Maybe you're more articulate than I no, am. You if you, you, totally no, no pl- you are totally articulate. You just said it. You said can, it. Can you elaborate on yeah, what sure. I'm trying to well,
2: convey? first, could I take a uh, do a sidebar? Please. You mentioned I was creator of Tibet House U.S. Let me just say my wife Nena, is the creator of Tibet House U.S. I just give talks I could never organize. I could never hold things together like that. She's totally the creator of Tibet House. I just want to say that. And secondly, His Holiness especially gave us permission to announce officially we are the cultural center in America of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. He's our patron and founder. We are all just co-founders. So I just wanted to make a sidebar about Tibet House. It's the first thing. That A, my wife created it. Basically, and I and Philip Glass, lots of people helped, and they're still helping. And it isn't fully created; it has to become like a permanent uh, monument to the survival of the Tibetan culture and the Tibetan people that will not go away, no matter what happens.
1: And you've added uh, some retreat property to that too. Yes, someone gave
2: us a place to it called, which we call Menla, and you can find it menla dot org. In order to show Tibetan medicines, wonderful. Uh, body-mind, you know, psychosomatic way of approaching illnesses and so on, using mindfulness and other deeper meditations and also uh, herbal meditation and natural medicine and natural dietary things and so forth. Like, uh, you know, Chinese medicine and Ayurvedic medicine and Western herbal medicine, you know, more more natural, sort of naturopathic things. And it, has a, it gives a beautiful spiritual umbrella, the medicine Buddha does. And, and that's part of... Preserving Tibetan culture. So, we were given a place, lock, stock, and barrel by a wonderful lady, another Tara mm. uh, like you, and uh, another Tara saviorous, uh, you know, female, um, uh, great spiritual being. And uh, we we're working on all that. So, I just wanted to do as a little sidebar. I'm sorry to do that. No, uh, thank but, you uh, so but much. I think it's, uh, I would like people to know that. And uh, Tibet House also is the publisher of the Man of Peace book. And therefore, when people buy that book, they're also helping preserve Tibetan culture. And uh, so that's another p- positive thing about it. And, and we're very happy about that. We managed, someone gave us a grant to, for the, it was the artists, the five artists who worked on it. And I, I'd also like to say about the book itself, uh, there was a, a gentleman, my co-author, William Myers, who I put first in honor of him and his wife because he brought the project to me at a certain inchoate phase. And then I jumped in, and then I brought another younger person. Three of us finished it, and uh, lovely people supported it, finally. With uh, And five artists worked very hard for two years, uh, over two years. And um, what happened was the wife was dying of cancer and had been given three months to live. And then she met the Dalai Lama, luckily for her, and he somehow felt, I guess, his his psychic intuition, whatever it is, that he could help her a little bit. He didn't promise her to cure it. He just said, if you would be interested in consulting my physicians in Dharamsala. Maybe you could live a bit longer, he sort of said to her, you know, and more comfortably. And she did that, and she lived over three years. Mm -hmm. And during that time, she, out of gratitude, and because she was feeling well, although she knew she hadn't been able to, whatever kind of cancer it was, um, she felt out of gratitude. She would like to make a graphic novel that younger people as well as older people could read, so that his holiness's message and mission and nature and everything could be well known by people in the future. So she, she started a little bit to putter away at it. And then when she did pass away, she bound her husband's deathbed wish, you know, please finish that. And so he's not was not a writer; he's a book designer and a, a, a remar- an environmentalist and a marvelous person, but he wasn't actually a writer at that point. He did write magazine things, especially on environment so he's been he put it away for years and then finally he brought it to tibet house and then it became a natural thing for us to join up uh, forces you know t- maybe ten years ago mm-hmm. and then we had two years for last two years we got a grant and uh, and managed to finish it so so I have to honor her, you know his wife. Uh, who really started us down that direction. And, of course, I welcomed it because I'm always sad. People who love, even people who love His Holiness, they then say, because they're also, we're all brainwashed into despair, you understand. The reason we have a silly government now in the U.S., if not, and even silly to the degree of silly malevolence, Government that is really inimical to the people that it's governing, which is what we have right now. And the reason we have that is because for decades now, the media has been conspiring and leadership has been conspiring to keep everyone really depressed by saying and keep everybody feeling that they can't do anything, so their vote won't matter. And they actually like the people who are super left and who act like, well, it's all evil anyway, and it's all terrible, and it's all should fall apart. People don't know that, but you know, Hitler got in in Germany because the socialists wouldn't vote in the 1932 election thinking stupidly, it's all so bad. Let it all go bad, and then we'll all win later, you know, (laughs) ha, 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 you know. And everyone knows what happened after that. And so the American people are like that, and only less than 60% of them vote. If 80% even voted, of course 100% should vote who are eligible to vote, they could then suppress a lot of people like the Republicans do. And cheat and things, but that's such a huge margin. It would be like Obama. They would win anyway in spite of the cheating because the margin would be big enough. The problem with Hillary was she didn't include the Bernie people properly, and therefore the margin was not big enough, and they cheated her out of the swing states. which she actually won everything, she, not just California. She well, won I, everything. I
1: don't, I don't want to get into the I don't details into the, because— well, No, I, but it's important
2: yeah. because— People should realize they must be active. They are powerful. They don't have to be angry and just throw rocks in the street. They have to vote. They have to go out and run for a sheriff. They have to run for—if they don't like Sheriff Arpaio, they should run for sheriff themselves. They have to go and run for school board. They have to be active and not just sit on the TV and swallow despair and that there's nothing that, they can do.
1: Part of that is— um, getting together in in whatever small groups i mean i know yes, i have i right. have i have a group in fact we all went to a to a, a concert in the park yesterday a peace and wonderful. justice concert in the park free concert and Fabulous. so we all kind of got together and danced together and it was oh, well, wonderful great. you wonderful. know and uh, i belong to a joyful noise gospel choir and, and mm-hmm. we sing together so wonderful. we have to have these things that Gladden our hearts yes. that keep us, keep us energized for yes. that kind of activism yes. that you're talking Resistance about. Resistance
2: and activism should be joyous. I totally agree. For example, imagine if, when they, when some corrupt governor and secretary of state in some state puts one voting machine for eighty thousand people in a poor neighborhood, on purpose, and there's this line that is a mile long. If they were singing in the mile and the people were bringing them f- food and potluck and et cetera, then they would just wait it out. And it would and be they, a
1: party. Yeah, that's right.
2: And, <laughs> yeah. and they'd they be happy. They wouldn't Let's be standing there. Let's a party there.
1: in our voting lines. Yeah, but
2: the, and the key thing is they'd make sure that they go and vote because yeah. they would not accept despair and depression and that nothing we do will help because it's true, you know, even seeing imperfections in their own person. It's a syllogism people should learn who are very, think of themselves as radical and wanting to really do the right thing. Lesser of evil equals less evil. How about that as a syllogism? That's unassailable, actually. Right. You know, lesser of evil doesn't mean everybody's evil, it just means less evil. And we need that always. Less evil is going toward goodness. and,
1: And not to get despair, be despaired if. There's something that doesn't work out the way we want. Exactly. To let it go. Let, let go to, you of Let it, it go. Uh, I, you know, we could go on and on. I, just, oh, I love being with you, but I, <laughs> I want to remind our listeners that I've been here with Robert Thurman, and he is the co-creator of his new book, uh, Man of Peace, the Illustrated Life Story of the Dalai Lama of Tibet. And if you want to know more about his work, You can go to his website, bobtherman.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3622.
0: New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions.